good and gracious king. He, he's the king that we're here to celebrate, the resurrected king. And so now as you remain standing, I want to read for you today's passage. Now I want to warn you, as I read this, you're going to be thinking, Mike, that's not an Easter passage. And it's not. But from this passage, we will get to the Easter message and to the core of what the Easter message means for each of us today. So will you remain standing? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. The word of God says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's stop right there. Go ahead and have a seat. Now this text, uh, we, we've been working through Ephesians for actually just about a year. In fact, last year at Easter is when we began the book of Ephesians. So you kind of get an idea of how long we've been in this book. And, and we've been working through it, finally getting to chapter 6. And honestly, as we wrestled with Easter morning, instead of taking a break and just doing an Easter message, I, I think this text is actually going to be one of the most helpful passages for us today as we consider the reality of Easter. This is a text that I kind of feel bad for those that haven't been with us for the last year. This is a text that begins with that word, finally. And you need to understand that everything up to this point has been building. Over the last 12 months, we've walked through this incredible book of Ephesians. And if I was to just summarize the book of Ephesians very, very briefly for you, here's what this whole book is about. Here's everything you need to know up to this word, finally. Ephesians is about how you don't earn right standing before God, but how Jesus, in his great gift of his death and resurrection for you, that if you will trust in that, it's given to you. It's an incredible message. It's the opposite of what we find in our culture. Our culture that says work hard enough for what you can earn. This is a free gift of God. Now, today, I'm not going to actually work through all of these verses. I'm actually going to zero in on one phrase, and I want to allow that to serve as a launching pad to talk about the spiritual reality that we live in. In that one phrase, here it is, verse 11, here's the call. It's a call to Stand against the schemes of the devil. To stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, th this is a kind of an intense phrase, right? And it's a, 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 an idea that I recognize that we gather here, especially on a day like today, in Easter. I know there are people in this room that you have trusted in Christ, and you have experienced temptation, you've experienced deception, and you have turned away from that. You understand that there is a God and a Savior, and you understand that there is a devil and who is Satan, and, and you understand that spiritual dynamic. But I also recognize there are some people here that you, you've been invited to an Easter service and you're still wrestling with what you believe about the spiritual realm. You're still wrestling with what you believe about Christ. Well, I'm so glad you're here if that's you. And I'm going to ask you for just a little bit of time that I'm going to share today. I'm going to ask you to be willing to consider the reality. The reality that there is an enemy of your soul who has aims against you. That he has aims against you, and his aims are seen in this, this short phrase, the schemes of the devil. Now, let me set this up for you by just kind of the, the reality that we live in a world that is full of screens. 
I mean, we live in a screen time world, right? I mean, some of you guys, you're looking at the screens up here. We all have TVs in our homes. We all have computer screens. Many of us have phones. Some of you guys are looking at your phones on Facebook right now. I can tell, right? I, I know. I know if you're doing that right. So we, we live in a world that's full of screens. And as our world has become like screen-centric, there's been a lot of studies about screens and the way they impact us. In fact, the world of neuroscience has done some study about how blue light impacts our eyes and then impacts our brain. Have you heard of blue light before? It's a kind of light that comes off of your screen. There's all sorts of different kinds of lights, and, and they impact you in different ways. And a number of years ago, I remember hearing about blue light, and here's the deal. I live in a screen-filled world right? I write on a computer. I have a screen in front of me. In fact, I have two screens at my desk, right? Uh, right here, I, I have my iPad that I preach from. In fact, last night, Siri decided to talk to me as I was preaching. It's a screen-filled world, right? In fact, when I study, most of my study is on screens because I, my library, it's mostly digital. So almost everything I have, I have a, a giant library, right, in my, my fingertips all the time. So I'm always on screens. And so when a few years ago I started hearing about blue light, and I was like, you know, I should probably pay attention to this, right? They say things like you should turn off blue light about an hour before bed so you'll sleep better. And I, I started doing that. One person recommended that you get these things called blue light blockers. Have you ever heard of those? Blue light blockers. They're meant to block the blue light from coming into your eyes. And so I figured since I'm on a screen all the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to get a pair of those, right? So I went with a really fancy pair, right? Actually, they're really cheap. And, and I got these blue light blockers. And I, I, my thought was I will wear these while I'm at my desk, and I'll wear these when I'm working on a screen. But I actually, I didn't notice any difference between when I wore them and when I did not wear them. And so the reality is these things, you know what they end up doing? They sit on my desk all week long, and I never really touch them. I don't have the blue light being blocked. But, but I want us to take that idea, and I want us to turn a corner for a minute. I want to shift our thinking. Because we live in a world that talks about light, and talks about the kind of light, and the way it impacts us. And we even live in a world that talks about blocking certain kinds of light so that it does not impact us negatively. But here's where I want to turn the corner. And I want to ask you if, if maybe, just maybe, you're wearing blockers. Maybe, just maybe, you're not wearing blue light blockers or polarized sunglasses, but you are wearing blockers that keep you from seeing the spiritual realm, that keep you from understanding the spiritual truth that all of life is founded on. They keep you from understanding the truth of Christ. They keep you from understanding the, the reality that Christ made the world to work a certain way. In fact, my big idea today my whole goal, what I'm going to do on this Easter Sunday is I want to show you who Christ is. I want to show you how Christ works. And I want to do that with one simple big idea that is this, that Christ is the light by which we truly see. This is my goal today. I want you to get a vision for who Christ is. Now, if you're someone who's already trusted in Christ, my hope is that this just fills your heart with hope and encouragement and joy as you become more and more amazed at Christ. But listen, if you're here today and you're someone who is visiting because a family member or a friend has invited you and you are not sold on Jesus, let me, let me just ask you to open up your mind and, and to wrestle with the potential that you very well might be wearing spiritual blockers that you might be blind to the truth of, of the spiritual world. In fact, maybe, maybe we should begin by just asking ourselves a few questions. How, how is your spiritual sight 
How, how well do you see the spiritual dynamics that exist in your life? How about this? How aware are you of the schemes that the devil has for you? Well, with those questions in mind, let's open up our Bibles. And today I'm going to be in Ephesians 6 for a moment, and then we're going to go, go to a different passage that's going, where we'll spend most of our time. But let's open up our Bibles, and as we do, this is going to be a bit of a unique message. I'm going to spend some time speaking directly to those who are Christians, and I am going to spend some time appealing to those who are still considering Christ. And so let's do that together. Let's open up our Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, and let's begin with this, this truth. The devil is scheming against you. The devil has plans against you. The, the devil, he, he has intentions for evil for you. Let me show you this text. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. It says, finally, finally be strong in the Lord. This is Jesus. And in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the armor of God. In the next few weeks, we're going to wrestle with some of these other spiritual dynamics. But today, I've already mentioned, we are going to zero in on this phrase, the, the schemes of the devil. Now, I want us to understand right out of the gate two things. First of all, I want you to see that the devil, he schemes against believers. If you're here and if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, you might be tempted to think, you know what, I've got Jesus, the devil can't touch me, and so I don't have to worry about spiritual things whatsoever, right? If only that were true. The reality is that as a believer, the devil is scheming against you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. It says, be sober-minded. This is the idea of, of being, uh, being clear-minded. Be sober-minded and be watchful. And here's what it says. Your adversary, the devil, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking or looking for someone to devour. That's a frightening verse. This says that the devil, in his scheming, he is like a lion. And as a lion, he's, he's stalking his prey and he's looking for someone that he can devour. Now, what does this devouring look like? Does this mean that he's going to ruin your life physically? Does this mean he's going to make you destitute financially? Likely not, although there might be space for that in some settings. But, but his way of devouring believers, his two main methods are, first of all, deception and secondly, temptation. Believers, here, here's how he wants to devour you. These are his schemes against you. Deception means he wants to get you to believe things that are not true. Things about God, and even things about you that are not true. And then, then likewise, temptation. He wants you to act in ways that are not true based on your new identity in Christ. He wants you to live a life of arrogance and pride. He wants to live, you, live a life of selfishness and anger. He wants you to live a life of, of lust and, and sexual promiscuity. He wants you to walk down this path of temptation, pursuing the, the wrong desires. He has schemes against you. Now, we hear that, and we might say, okay, well, if he's got all of his attention on believers and he's scheming, well, maybe that means if you're not a believer that he's really not concerned about you. Maybe that means if you're not a believer, the devil's not scheming against you. But here's the reality. The devil schemes against unbelievers as well. He has, 
he has evil intentions for those that are not in Christ also. That this, these evil intentions, they're a little bit different, and he actually has a different amount of influence over their lives. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, when the Apostle Paul is writing to someone saying, hey, this is the way you need to act with non-believers. And I'm going to give you the mic paraphrase. He says, if you're, act, if you're with non-believers, don't be a jerk. That's the mic paraphrase, right? And then here's why. He says this. He says, the Lord may grant them repentance and they may come to their senses. Look at these words. And escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is just plain speech for you today, friends. This is just laying it out without trying to hide anything, without trying to soften anything. If you are here and you are not in Christ, I want you to understand, you've been captured. You've been captured by the enemy of your soul, and you are being led along to do his will. Now, I know you're going to say, Mike, I do whatever it is that I want. And, and here's the deal. That's exactly what the enemy of your soul wants you to think. He wants you to think that living in selfishness is exactly what you want, but really, it's exactly what he wants for you. Because it's the opposite of honoring God. It's the opposite of the life that you were called to live. This is living life in the schemes of the enemy of your soul. Now listen, the reason why he schemes against believers and non-believers alike is because he hates believers and non-believers alike. The reality is that you, listen, whether you're a Christian or not, listen very carefully, you were made in the image of God. God made you, and he loves you, and so because of that, Satan hates you, and he wants to unmake you. He wants to destroy you. This is, this is the heart behind the one who schemes against us. He, he, he schemes, and so then the question is, how should we respond to this schemer? How do we react to this schemer? With that said, I want you to turn. Our main text today is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look through six verses in this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and here's, here's where I want us to begin. Sometimes as believers, we can become a little bit anxious. We can start thinking, you know what? We live in this world and there is a spiritual dynamic and Satan is scheming against me and he's scheming against my loved ones. And so because he's doing that, you know what? We need to match his methods. It's kind of like if you've ever been playing sports and you see the other team is cheating and you say, you know, if they're going to cheat, I'm going to cheat, right? And so we kind of like match their angst. Sometimes we start to think that way as Christians. And we start to make the ministry, we make the church about us, and about what we bring to the table, but listen very carefully. This is not the way that we act as Christians. I mentioned I'm going to talk to Christians and non-Christians back and forth. As we begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, these first few verses, they really are for you if you're a believer. What we're going to see as we jump into this is that no scheming is allowed for Christians. We, we don't play by Satan's playbook. We don't try to trick people into praying a prayer and trusting Jesus. There's no scheming allowed. Let me show you this text, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 2. But we have renounced 
disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone in everyone's conscience in God's sight. I love this. This is, this is vital for a believer, and this is also very helpful if you're here as, not as a believer. What he says here is there's no scheming allowed. I remember when I was early in ministry as a youth pastor, and I remember meeting with a guy that had been an influence in my life and in my early, early years at coming to faith. And I remember having a cup of coffee with him, and, and I was kind of sharing with him how hard it was to reach teenagers sometimes and how hard-hearted the teenagers were sometimes. And, and just kind of sharing, like, I want them to know the truth. I want them to know the Bible. I'm having difficulties here. And his advice to me, his advice, honestly, it was some of the worst advice I ever got. He says, here's what you need, Mike. Mike, you need a gimmick. You know what a gimmick is? You need a shtick, right? He said, maybe, Mike, you can become like a, you can learn to skateboard really well and you can be like that skateboarding youth pastor that's really cool, right? Or maybe, Mike, you should, you should get a special haircut and that haircut will make you stand out and so that everyone, they'll just recognize you and they'll think something about you that's good and, and they'll, they'll notice you. You need a gimmick. I'm really glad I didn't get a special haircut, by the way. And I never took up skateboarding, but... But this is the opposite. This is the opposite of what this text teaches us. This text teaches us that there is no gimmicks to Christianity. That there's not to be frills and hype. Instead, we are to have the open statement of the truth. Let me walk you through this text. Let me give you two observations in this, these two verses. The first is that Christians, instead of having a gimmick, Christians, we do not lose heart. Christians do not lose heart. The text says, it says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This, this really means that, first of all, you serve God by his mercy. Believers in Jesus, if there's anything good that you ever do, it's because God has given you a gift to do it. Now, this, this is so helpful. This means we don't lose heart because here's the deal. I know that some of you in this room have been praying for people to come to know Christ. I know that there's some in this room who have invited people to come to this service, and, and some people have come, but, but I know there are invitations that have been given that have been declined. In fact, I know that there are some people in this room that you have sat down with a loved one and that you have shared the gospel with someone you've loved, and they have denied it. And it would be so easy in those moments to lose heart. Well, why do you lose heart? Well, here's why. Because you've experienced the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You know how good it is to be in Christ. You have your hope for eternity in heaven with him. And then you love someone so dearly and you care for someone so much. But they, they don't know that love and that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness. They don't have the same destiny waiting for them. In fact, they have the opposite destiny. Instead of an eternity in heaven, in peace, in joy with God, they have an eternity that Jesus describes as a place of torment and of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it would be so easy for you to lose heart. But you don't lose heart. Why? It says, because you've been given this ministry by the mercy of God. You realize any success you have in sharing the gospel, any success a church has in reaching people for Christ, it's all by the mercy of God. It's not by how persuasive you are. It's not by how persuasive I am. In fact, I can't change a single heart in this room. I'm not even going to try. 
It's all by the mercy of God. So first of all, do not lose heart. If you're here today and the loved one you invited is not, keep praying, keep inviting, keep sharing, and don't lose heart. But, but here's the second observation. Not only do we not lose heart, but, but we do not scheme. Christians do not scheme. Look at this text. This is amazing. He says, because we've been given this ministry by the mercy of God, here's what he says. He says, first of all, we've renounced. This is aggressive language. This isn't like we only occasionally do this thing. He says, we've renounced what? Disgraceful, underhanded ways. Disgraceful and underhanded ways are, are ways that are tricking, ways that are, are lessening the impact of the gospel, ways that are they're, they're more about us than they are about Jesus. Let me give you a few examples of disgraceful and underhanded ways. Disgraceful ways are ways that are built off of, first of all, entertainment. Entertainment would be if you come here and we're all about the show. If we give you all of the hype that your money can buy, if we make it this great emotional spectacular, spectacular situation where, where everyone's just, you know, it's all about the entertainment, that, that, would be, that would be the opposite of what we're called to. Just like the second way is emotionalism. If you come here and all we do is tell you everything you want to hear so you feel happy and you get a little bit of a warm fuzzy inside and you leave here feeling like you're just the most awesome person in the world, that, that's what we're talking about here. This is disgraceful. It's underhanded. Or how about this? The third way I'm going to call it entrapment. This is the bait and switch method of evangelism. Uh, this is when a church says, hey, Come to our Easter service and, and put your name in the drawing and one person's going to walk out the doors with $10,000. I mean, who, who wants to walk out the door with $10,000? I mean, that, that'd be nice, right? But what they end up doing is they end up appealing to people that aren't actually seeking Jesus. It's the bait and switch. And the last one here would be what I'll call egotism. When we make it all about a personality, when we make it all about someone's charisma, instead of making about what it says is the open statement of truth, the plain declaration of the word of God. He says, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Secondly, he says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. To practice cunning or to tamper with God's word is when we, when we get you here together and we we avoid all of the hard parts or we water down the truth. To practice cunning or to tamper with God's word is for us to say, well, you know, it's going to be Easter and you know what? There's going to be people that come today and you know what? We want them to come back. And so you know what we should do? We shouldn't talk about Jesus and how much he loves them. And you know what we shouldn't do? We shouldn't talk about sin. We shouldn't talk about repentance. We shouldn't talk about the reality that when you come to Christ, he wants to change your life. It's not come to Jesus and, and everything's the same. It's come to Jesus and be transformed. When we practice cunning or tamper with God's word is when we, we fail to talk about the, the ethical call of the Christian life, the moral transformation, the reality that you're no longer to walk in selfishness. You're no longer to walk in greed. You're no longer to walk in, in unrighteous anger or in hate. You're no longer to practice lust. You are called away from all of that, and you are called to Christ. He, he says this. He says, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience before God. 
in a sense, what he says is, he says, you know what? You can test us. We're not here to trick you. We're not here to manipulate you emotionally. We're not here to guilt you into moral behavior. Instead, we are here simply to hold the word of God before you, to let you reason and let you weigh the, the, the claims of Christ and let you make your own decision. This is how Christians are meant to act. Now let's, let's go back and forth. If this part is for Christians, let's let the, the pendulum swing back over here. Let, let me speak a little bit differently now. Let's return back to, if, the, if Christians do not scheme, let's talk about Satan's scheming. What we see next in verses 3 and 4 is that the devil, he does scheme, and he schemes primarily to hide the gospel. Let me, let me show you this. This is, this is incredible. Verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this begins by not giving very seeker-sensitive language. This begins by just laying out a statement that, that I want to lay before you and have you consider. What he says here is that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel is, is covered, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 3 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now this is building off of the previous chapter, chapter 3. And in chapter 3, it talks about this guy named Moses. This was uh, in the Old Testament, Moses, the author of the first five books of, of the, the Bible. Now, Moses had a special relationship with God, and Moses actually had moments when he would go and be with God. God would, would communicate with him, and when Moses would return back to the people, his face would be glowing. He was in the presence of God and in God's glory. And so Moses, he, he would come back to the people, and he would literally wear a veil over his head because he didn't want it to be showing off this, this glow that came from his, him being in the presence of God, right? This is how significant it was to be in the presence of God. And in this text, chapter 3, it talks about how that veil remains, but that veil is no longer on Moses. That veil is now put on people who have a hard heart toward Jesus, Chapter 3 describes this as the person who is hard-hearted, the person who will not trust in Christ, the person who will not believe that Jesus died and rose again. It says that they now wear a veil. And it's a veil not so that others can't see them, but so that they can't see the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, chapter 3, verse 16. This is incredible. Speaking of that person with that hard heart that has their, their eyes and their face veiled from the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 16, it says this. It says, but when one turns to the Lord, look at this, the veil is removed. This is an incredible moment. When someone who has been resisting Christ, they've, been, they've, they've planted their heels deep into the ground, they, they've pushed away any proclamation of Jesus, they said that Jesus is not for me, maybe it's for you, but it's not for me. The moment when they turn to Christ, it, this is a promise, the veil, the light blocker, it's removed. Now, let's keep going. Because this text, it shows us the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. This is those who have yet to trust in Christ. This is those who don't have an eternity that's of life. They have an eternity that's of death. But then verse 4, we see that 
make matters worse, that the God of this world blinds them. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, from seeing what? Look at this, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, let me, let me help you with this. When this text speaks about the God of this world, we, our mind, it probably goes to the one true God. But this is not talking about the one true God. This is talking about Satan again. This is talking about this, this demonic force who has been given authority over the world. He doesn't have unlimited authority. It's been said that the devil is still God's devil. In a sense, the devil is on a leash. His, his power only goes so far, yet he has been given this power and his scheming, notice what his scheming is. His scheming is to find the people that have a hard heart and that have the veil and then he does everything he can to keep that person blind. He does everything he can to keep that person from considering Christ. He does everything he can to continue to have that person focused on their own selfishness and their own pleasure, or maybe to have that person continue to focus on their own self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus. I've got a good life. He does everything he can to keep them blinded. <coughs> this is the enemy. This is his game. This is his scheme. But here's what I want you to see. Look at the end of verse 4. <coughs> Jacob, would you hand me that cup sitting on that chair right there? I hope there's something left in it. Thank you. <coughs> Look at the end of verse 4. It says, to keep them from seeing <coughs> the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's what I want you to understand right now. The gospel can still shine through. Even though the enemy of your soul is working double and triple time to keep you blinded, the gospel can still shine through. Listen, if you have not trusted Christ, I want to speak so clearly to you right now. You are not here by accident. The enemy doesn't want you here. He doesn't want you hearing a message that is honestly very little fluff. He doesn't want you hearing a, a plain declaration of Jesus and his death and resurrection on your behalf. He wants you to remain comfortable in your blindness. But listen, the gospel can still shine through. The devil is not more powerful than God. In this moment, you are here and you get this moment where you can hear, what does it say? The gospel. Now, now, what is the gospel? I'm, I'm glad you asked, right? Well, what is the gospel? L let me give you this, this idea of the gospel. In fact, can I just take a few minutes? I'm going to tell you the, the big picture of this entire thick book, this entire Bible. It might be intimidating to you. Let me tell you the whole story in just a few brief moments. Here's the gospel. God made you in his image to know him. He made you to know him. He made you in love. This is his design. This is why we're made in his image. But here's where things get bad. You and I, we have done the same exact thing that Adam and Eve did in that garden all those years ago. 
They were given one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, here's the line. Do not cross it. And you know what they did? They crossed it. And guess what? You have done the same thing and so have I. Whenever we act in selfishness, whenever we act in a way that does not match God's character, who is holy, in that moment, the Bible calls that sin, right? Small word with a big meaning. It calls it sin. It's rebellion against God. And here's the deal. When we sin, we take that relationship that God made us for and we break it. We ruin it. And then the news gets bad. The Bible teaches there's nothing you can do to fix that. There's no extra credit. There's no coming in after class and doing some extra work. If you've broken it, you cannot fix it. My favorite illustration of this is, imagine if you have some, some pure white brand new carpet in your living room, right? And you take a blender and you fill it half full of dog poop and then the other half you fill it full of dark red wine. You blend that thing together really good. You pour it out on that carpet and you allow a thousand people just to walk through it. And then I'll give you a scrub brush and say, clean it up. No, no scrubbing is going to rescue that carpet. That's the status of you and I when we have broken our relationship with God. No amount of good deeds will ever fix what we've broken. But this is where the story gets good. This is what makes the faith all about Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus, he came and he lived a perfect life. Anyone else do that yet? Nope. He lived a perfect life. And then he said, you know what? I love you so much that I'm going to make a great trade. I'm going to take all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your guilt. I'm going to take the consequence for anything and everything you've ever done wrong, no matter how bad it is. I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to pay the punishment for it by dying on that cross. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you credit for everything good I have ever done. He gives us credit for his perfect life. And the Bible teaches that anyone who's willing to trust in Jesus, not their own good works, not their ability to do good enough or to try harder, but anyone who's willing to trust in Christ, they are given this forgiveness. They're given a brand new life. They're given the spirit of God to live in them, and they're given the promise of eternal life in heaven. This is the gospel. I want you to see today, you are not here by accident. The gospel can still shine through. And maybe, just maybe, it's starting to shine through in your heart right now. Let's go back to the believer then. If that's Satan's schemes, if he's trying to keep people blind, what do we do as believers? Well, listen, Christians, here's your job. If you're a believer here, Christians simply point to Christ. This is, this is the whole summary of what we do, how we live. Look at verse 5. The text writes, it says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is, this is so freeing. Here's what it teaches. First of all, that Christians do not point to their own goodness. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Christians do not point to their own goodness. I remember for years I worked at Albertsons and, uh, and every so often I'd have to work on Sunday afternoons. And I'm going to tell you a, a kind of a dirty little secret, right? Sunday afternoons at a grocery store is one of the worst times to work. Because when church gets out and all these Christians who are dressed in their Sunday best, they, they come through your store and so many of them acted so entitled. So many of them acted rude to employees 
In fact, I remember after many times dealing with the Sunday afternoon rush, having to deal with that and, and telling my non-believing coworkers, listen, Christians aren't supposed to act like that. Christians sin too. Just don't, don't trust that that's how Christians are supposed to be. Don't allow that to be the picture you have of Jesus Christ. They've experienced Christians who proclaim themselves, who were all about themselves. Maybe you've experienced that with Christians in your life. Maybe you've had Christians that have hurt you. Maybe you've been part of a church that was all about the flair and the hype and the look and the attire. Maybe you have had a church experience where it was pretty bullish and, and there was domineering leadership and it was all about a certain personality and, and it left you with a sour taste in your mouth about Jesus because of the way those Christians acted. Maybe some of those Christians are in your family. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian home, by the way. Maybe some of those Christians that hurt you are those that should have been caring for you the most. And so you come here and, and you're a little bit standoffish because of the way that Christians have treated you. Or maybe you're like the, the man at Burger King that my son told me about the other day as he was talking with them about Jesus. He was like, I don't go to church. You know, those pastors, those preachers, all they want is, all they want is my money, right? And so maybe you've been in that context where all, all you see is the church being like, what can you do for me? Instead of coming and being like, what can I do for you? Listen, this text makes it so clear. Christians do not make much of themselves. We don't point to our own goodness it's not about how good we are or how, how nice we dress. In fact, I'm up here sweating wearing this jacket. I told Brandon last night, I was like, there's a reason why I don't wear this very much, right? It, it's not about the look. It's not about that. It's about something entirely different. What's it about? Look at the rest of this verse. Christians instead, they do good for Jesus' sake. This is what we see next. The verse continues, it says, instead of proclaiming ourselves, it says, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Christian, here, here it is. Here's your message. Jesus is Lord. How can I serve you? This is how the Christian is meant to live. Jesus is Lord. How can I help this is how the Christian acts. Jesus, he died and rose again, and in his resurrection, he is now King of kings and Lord of lords, and now my job is to figure out how I can love you and how I can care for you and how I can serve you so that you can see how awesome, not how awesome I am, but how awesome Jesus is. This is how Christians are to live. This is what the Christian life is. Now, we've been on a journey, but let's get to our final verse our final verse, and this is really, I want to return and speak directly to those who are still considering Christ for a little bit longer. The final thing we're going to see this morning is this. In, in this world of spiritual blindness, in this world where the enemy is trying to blind you from believing Jesus, here's what we find. God heals blindness through Jesus Christ. He, he can let the light shine through in your life today. In fact, Maybe you walked in these doors not believing in Jesus at all. Maybe you walked in these doors with your heels dug deep saying, I'm going to do life my way. I'm just coming here today because Aunt Gertrude invited me and I wanted to make her happy, right? But listen, you might have walked in here without trusting Christ. You can leave today with your life transformed by Jesus and his light shining into your heart. Let me show you this verse. Chapter 4, verse 6. It says, For God... 
For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hear me very well. If you walk out of this room transformed, it's not because of my preaching. It's because in this moment, the light of the glory of God is shining into your heart. This text says two major things. First of all, it says that God is the creator of life. This is the foundation. It says, for the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. This reminds us that everything that was made, it was made by the word of God. God spoke everything into being. God, with his very word, he made the world. He made the sun and the stars and the moon. He made all of the vegetations. He made the land and the water, and he made you. The same God that made you is also the giver of new life. Here's what it says. It says, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Look at these next few words. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, this is the light. I'm just gonna be honest. This is the light that has shone into my heart. There was a time in my life when I was far from God when I was doing whatever I wanted without giving much thought to who Jesus was at all. Maybe some in this room, you remember that moment for you. When the light shined in and your life was changed. But, but here's, here's the deal. Right now, if you were here, if you walked in those doors not trusting in Christ, and if, if this story of Jesus is starting to make sense, maybe for the first time, If right now, it's almost like all these things you've kind of heard are all coming together in a way that finally you get. You want to know what's happening in this moment? One of the most exciting things that will ever happen. Right now, God is shining his light into you. Let me show you how this works. The text says, it says he does this, first of all, to give the light of the knowledge. This is simply to give you a spiritual understanding Here's what's happening. Your spiritual light blockers, they're being removed. You're starting to see that there is a God and that there is a Christ. You're starting to see that you are in spiritual peril because of your sin. You're starting to understand that your sin is rebellion against God. You're starting to see that there's nothing you can do to fix it. And then the text continues. It says to give the light of the knowledge, and then it says of the glory of God. You're starting to see the glory of God. Now that word glory, you know what it means? It means weight. It means worth. It means substance. You're starting to realize how important, how how God is everything. He is the most valuable thing ever. And then here's the last phrase. The most important. In the face of Jesus Christ. See, you're starting to see that it's not about how good you are. It's not about how hard you have tried to be a a moral person. Instead, you are coming to the only conclusion that you are in desperate need of a Savior, and Jesus has become that Savior for you. This is is the reality. This This is my heart for you today. Listen, the devil can scheme all he wants, but once that light shines in your heart, You only have one choice, and it's to turn toward him. 
Once that light shines in your heart, listen, the veil is being lifted from you right now. Now, I want to be very clear as, as I bring this to an end. You might be thinking, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer once. I walked an aisle once. I raised my hand once. Listen, all of those things might reflect the light shining in your heart, but they don't necessarily mean that's happened. In this moment, the open statement of the truth is very simple. If the light is shining in your heart, it's a light that leads you to turn from your own selfishness. It's a light that leads you to turn from your own self-reliance, and it's a light that leads you to trust in Jesus, to put your faith in him, to allow him to be the only hope you have for eternity. If you do that, you're able, to, you're, you're able to understand that I once was blind, but now I see. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great weekend. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and speak the truth plainly. Father, I pray that you would do what what I certainly can't do and what none of us here can do, that you would let your light shine through the words of, of the Scripture into the hearts and minds of each of us today. Father, I pray for those who walked in this room having already put their faith in Jesus. I pray that today that their heart would be full of light. They would remember your grace in a fresh way. They will walk in your love with, it, with a new passion. They will praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Lord, I also pray especially for those who are, they're still wrestling with what they believe about Jesus. They're still considering Jesus' claims. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where the light shines through. Father, I pray you would, you would prevent the enemy from blinding those folks in this moment. Father, I know that there's all sorts of other thoughts that spring up in minds in this moment, all sorts of reasons to ignore this reality that's being poured into their mind. But in this moment, Lord, I pray that you would deliver them out of the kingdom of darkness, out of this blindness of the spiritual realm, and that by faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection, they would be able to truly see. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.